show all about people's personal journeys to Bitcoin. In this episode, I speak with Daniel Pickering, Chief Investment Officer of Listed Reserve, a Sydney-based digital asset fund. We chat about his journey through the world of gambling, including a stint as the CFO of William Hill Australia, and why as an industry, the gambling world is often an early adopter. Listen on to learn what it feels like to set up your own digital asset fund, why the internet and mobile adoption shed light on Bitcoin, and the bright future of digital assets. To see someone with deep expertise like Daniel recognize Bitcoin for what it is, then jump headfirst into a business of their own, exemplifies precisely what I love about interviewing people in this space. Daniel, once again, thank you so much for your time. Your business has a bright future ahead, I'm sure. Now I'd like to take a quick moment to mention my sponsor, FastBitcoins.com. They're a Bitcoin-only exchange based in the Isle of Man on a really exciting journey. If you'd like to learn more about them, I encourage you to search back through my episode library and listen to a couple of key conversations. Firstly, Danny Brewster, the founder-CEO, and secondly, Nathan Smith, the chief compliance officer. Both stories give an excellent insight into the people building the business. In the coming weeks, you can expect a custom referral link, which you can also use on sign-up to get the best possible rates. We haven't quite put the finishing touches on it, so please keep your eyes peeled. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome back to Bitcoin with Jake. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Pickering. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me on. No, absolute pleasure and thank you for joining. Um, I confess I, I don't know much about yourself or your business listed reserve, so I'm looking forward to, to learning about that this evening. What I like to do is um, start at the beginning of your Bitcoin journey, essentially, and often I find that's a great way to draw out um, different things as and when they happened over your lifetime that brought you to the point you're at today. So um, do you have a friend or a moment in time or any particular reason for um, getting involved in the Bitcoin space and becoming so interested in it as an asset class? And talk to me a little bit about your journey to the space. Yeah, sure. I actually came across it on the um, Max Kaiser's show on Russia Today. So I used to watch Russia Today um, sort of religiously it was a i found it quite a sort of fascinating news program for a whole variety of reasons but um his his show was on there i didn't watch it because um he talked about bitcoin i actually watched it because it's quite an entertaining um finance show so hmm. i watched that for years and you know he would always have guests on about bitcoin i was sort of like mm, okay didn't um didn't really get involved with it but certainly i was sort of absorbing what he was saying um, but at the time, I was working in internet gambling, and we were spending some time in Asia. And we came across a group there that, that was using Bitcoin quite extensively. And, and all of a sudden, and I sort of watched it happen in real time. And I was like, hmm, OK, that probably is quite interesting. So after that, I, uh, I started watching um, a guy called James D'Angelo's videos on the uh, on YouTube, he, he had this podcast called the uh, sorry YouTube series called um, Bitcoin Blackboard. It was Bitcoin Blackboard One Hundred and One, and he went through Bitcoin from start to finish uh, in excruciating uh, detail, and it was sort of it was super fascinating. And I watched all of those, and at that point, point I sort of thought, well, yeah, I understand it, even though I didn't, and um, and I and I got involved then. And so for some context for the listeners out there then, so roughly what dates are we talking here? 
um so the the russian today program that you were watching and then equally the james d'angelo stuff so roughly when did you come across these things i was it would have been sort of 2014 15 so and um, i mean the max kaiser show started that, that was 2009 so immediately after the financial markets crashed i think that's the reason that he sort of launched that show you know he was sort of railing against everything that happened post 2008 mm. um so yeah but I, I didn't really start watching sort of the yeah, 2013 and then you know we we didn't see the demo of uh of bitcoin until sort of late probably 2014 early 2015 mm. wow and amazing how much time can slip by isn't it <clears throat> so i'm intrigued so what what is um what is the asian internet gambling market like so um I actually worked in Singapore for a while um, and I loved it. I, I can hear from your accent. You're also originally from the UK, I guess, um, like myself, ended up in Australia somehow. So what's that journey been like then, Daniel? How did you end up in Asia looking at internet gambling businesses and what's, what, what are the skills you pick up during that process? And what I'm really interested in is the 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 skill sets that people acquire during their jobs they gain extreme expertise in certain things and then they come across bitcoin and maybe they ignore it once or twice but then they really get it and it's often because of what they were doing before that they understand it as well as they do so um do you have any moments that help contextualize why you saw its importance or equally teach me a bit about internet gambling in asia yeah sure so i am um... I sort of, yeah, from the UK and trained as an accountant and, you know, in a fairly traditional route, um, joined PwC at the time. And I sort of left as soon as I could to get into um, gaming. So one of my clients was um, in, ran a casino actually in uh, in London. And I, um, I then joined an internet gambling company in Gibraltar. So I spent a few years down in Gibraltar um before I um joined a company called William Hill that you would know. Yeah. And yeah. it was as the CFO of uh, William Hill Australia that we um we were sort of touring Asia and looking at um sort of internet um internet wagering businesses. But the thing about internet business uh, internet gambling is they they adopt technology very very quickly, right? They were first to the internet when it came out. They're right on the cutting edge of the tech. They were first to mobile when it came out and they were, you know, their apps were long before anybody had sort of even thought about it. They're very, very forward thinking as far as technology is concerned. And so when I sort of saw this uh, in use, it immediately sort of struck me. I'm like, I've been here before, right? I've been mm. here when the internet started. I've been here when mobile phones came out and I'm like, and now I'm standing here and these guys are doing this. Um, and I'd heard about it, right? You know, mm. Kaiser had been on and on and on about it on his show, and suddenly they're using it to settle. So Asian Asian gambling is actually different from how we experience it. It's all on credit. So um, if I say to our bookmaker that you're good for a million dollars, then you're good for a million dollars, and I'm on the hook for it as well as you because I said you were good for it, right? So there's this sort of trust cascade that goes through um, Asian gambling. And then when it comes to settlement, it all tended to be in cash, but they started to use um, digital currency. And one of the reasons they started to use digital currency, it is obviously much easier to move over sort of space and time. You know, some of these countries are very large. 
And it's far easier to use this than it is to use uh, any physical currency. And sort of, you know, the banking platforms weren't really available to them. So mm. it's like, wow, these guys are... And they were set, settling. It was big numbers, you know. It's it's not trivial. The, there's a guy, um, just as a, an aside, during it was the, the World Cup in France, right? Which was that? Was France 98? I think 98. 98. Yeah. Yeah. So France 98. There's a guy, a single man that stood on a corner in Hong Kong taking bets who turned over more than William Hill globally. One guy. Yeah. One guy. It's huge. Huge in Asia. So anyway, um, it's a it's a big business, and they, you know, they they're really cutting edge on on tech. And you know, I learned I learned a great deal um, while I was in that sector. It was terrific. And sorry, you mentioned briefly. So you were the CFO of William Hill Australia. Is that what you mentioned? That's correct. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. Well, what an incredible seat to view the gambling business from. I mean, you would see absolutely everything from there. And, and that's an interesting insight. So um, what you're saying is that you were part of an industry that was notorious for being early adopters in impactful technologies and actually creating applications for it, like early or early doors, essentially. Um, and, and talk to me a bit more about that. I mean, uh, having also spent some time in Asia, I know what you mean, that the gambling culture is like a whole new world. It is absolutely massive so what kind of numbers are you talking about that these businesses in asia that you were looking at were trying to move around that were you know i guess settlement of of gambling trades you know either people were in the red or black but it had to be settled so what kind of numbers are we talking here and what were some of the the problems that these businesses face you're talking short periods right so but you're still talking tens of millions right so yeah. you know they turn over a great deal more than that but the net settlement tends to be tends to be lower but you know it, 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 they're kind of enormous sums and the difference between i think for me you know as a, as a sort of penny drop moment is if i send you you know we're friends and i introduce you to bitcoin and i send you 20 dollars that, that, mm. that's one thing to see someone settle an enormous sum is is a totally different thing you know it, it's really it's like these guys really trust this thing right they this is a proper ledger that you can rely on because you know nobody um, and they're, they're you know extremely um bright people like you know highly numerate some of these people involved in these sectors and you know they're across the technology it, it was a for me, a huge validation of its capability to sort of see to see that kind of thing happen. Um, yeah, an enormous eye opener. And so, some of the, I guess, the problems that they previously had was, you know, they needed to settle ten million dollars in the next fifteen minutes, and they'd have to do that through a traditional banking system that just couldn't handle that. And how, how long? Just talk to me about some of the very basic problems they were facing. So the, well, the transactions were too expensive or the, the payment sizes were too big or it would take too long. Um, and where was Bitcoin superior as a result? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that you can do um, with, well, digital currency, particularly Bitcoin, is it's the 24-7 platform, right? There's no, the bank's closed. There's no your transferable process in, um, you know, if you use Swift, it's four days, right? It, you know, it's not an immediate mechanism for, for transfer. And if you think about, 
when activity generally arises in um, in gambling, it's on a weekend, right? So all of the fun stuff happens when the bank's closed, right? Because otherwise people at work, no one's putting on sporting matches when um, people are at work, right? So most of the activity is yeah. occurring outside of the time that, you know, financial markets are open and they can facilitate that activity. Now, you, obviously, you can do it with cards and all that kind of thing. You can't do it with cards for uh, large sums when you're settling between um, different bookmaking businesses, right? So they were using it as their sort of um, net settlement mechanism between bookmakers at, at, at times when, uh, you know, traditional markets just weren't open. And I think that's one of the one of the big differences between Bitcoin and, say, banking, right? I mean, Bitcoin's got more trading hours up its sleeve now than the NASDAQ. But the NASDAQ opened in 1980, you know, and Bitcoin's got more trading hours already because it trades 24-7. The NASDAQ does six and a half hours a day. It takes bank holidays off. It takes the weekend off. Yeah, wow. It's, it's, it's not, it's, yeah. The liquidity of, of Bitcoin as a comparison to the equities market is just insane, isn't it? Like the lack of regulation um quite rightly so that's in place you can just send something to someone on the other side of the world at any moment essentially um, and it is quite incredible going back to those transaction sizes when you sit and you can actually watch the blockchain transactions going through and um some of them are mammoth and they cost nothing people sending billions of dollars in bitcoin it's crazy isn't it yeah i mean when you look at you know when you look at when the blockchain gets quite quiet um, and you see the sort of consolidations that Binance do, where they sort of consolidate their addresses. And suddenly you get this tidal wave of transactions all wanting to pay, um, you know, one sat per byte. And mm. enormous the value that they're sort of truing up into accounts. It's incredible. I mean, it's turning over sort of 10 times what the ASX does um, seven days a week, Bitcoin, like at least. So it's, wow. yeah, it's, a, it's a mega beast these days. How interesting. And so, okay, going back to 2014, and um, you've come across this, this nascent technology, and it seems to be, you know, very similar to that, that moment that you witnessed with mobile and that moment that you witnessed with the internet um, itself. Uh, perhaps we can rewind to those moments. So uh, what was it like when the internet was first hitting the market, so to speak, and entrepreneurs were building businesses and investors were placing bets and businesses were being built out and, and equally with the mobile wave, like what were some of the highlights of those moments for you? If you could think back to anything that uh, strikes your mind now. Yeah, it, it, it's, I can sort of visualize the sort of early iterations of websites that we, that we built in, um, in Gibraltar. I mean, they were, they were, they were awful really, but you know, <laughs> people were, People were looking for that sort of way to transact, even though um, the experience was terrible. Um, everybody wanted to use the internet. Like it was amazing for them. I don't have to use my, leave my chair. I don't have to go in a shop. I can I can just sit here and do the thing that I want to do, right? And so yeah. the whole goal of um, the design mechanism became just make it as easy as possible. And, and that was, you know, what what we spent our time doing. You've just got to make it easier and easier and easier, and it got better and better and better. And it was a similar, I, I think the difficulty when mobile came was, I remember that sort of debate at the time about whether 
and people would do the things they do on the internet and the mobile phone. Certainly wasn't a slam dunk in people's minds, right? There was a big sort of, now no one's really going to do that on a sort of, because we had in our heads the old Nokia, right? You remember the old Nokia phone, right? And then the iPhone came out and it was like, okay, well, it might be possible. The thing that people seem to struggle with is um, making a sort of technology leap in their mind, right? So we've got, let's say, um, well, let's say now, right? We've got the iPhone 13. What's the iPhone 20 going to be like? What's it going to be able to do? That this thing can't do and that's what people struggle to visualize with mobile um, and there's a big debate do we spend all the money on the website or do we spend it on mobile and um eventually you know mobile sort of won out and it was obvious that mm. people would only use the mobile and why because it's just easy right it's just easy and you, you know you just see consumers tend towards what's easy just give me what's easy that's all i'm really interested in and so um, when, it, when you sort of apply that to what you see in, in digital currency, um, it's easy, right? Because, you know, you don't have to fill in any forms. You don't have to wait for something to open. You, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can just do it. And mm. it's quick and it's instant. And um, for that reason, you know, it's extremely freeing, I think, for people. Um, so, you know, there's, there's real... There's real sort of parallels, I think, in sort of what it enables people to do that they couldn't do before. Um, and that's the sort of trick to technology for me. It's like, can I now, is he making my life easier? You know, can I do things that I couldn't in the past? You know, are we are we ticking those boxes? And so just to, to recap slightly, so Gibraltar, you were there in the 90s? I was there in, let me think about that now. Yeah, late 90s, no, early 2000s, Gibraltar. Okay. early 2000s so is it because there's the late 90s dot com crash wasn't there so i'm just trying to visualize you know the internet's very much around at that stage but what it was like building businesses at the time and then how that relates to today which is very interesting context um yeah well we yeah, cool. you know the interesting thing about um gibraltar was we were a u.s facing business at, at the time so it was a u.s uh exchange it was a u.s sports book and of course, it got closed down by regulation in 2005, which is quite an interesting experience because um, you, you, I can sort of see the parallels there creeping up on us in, in this sector. And, you know, as, as regulation comes towards us, what is going to be killed and what is going to survive um, is, is sort of quite, um, is quite interesting. I think it's on the, on the horizon, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Well, what we might do, Daniel, is that that's a subject I'd love to discuss with you as a digital asset fund manager. Um, but w- before we go into that rabbit hole, because that's more of like a present day subject, shall we say, I'm, I'm still intrigued into this into this journey. So um, when did you start Listed Reserve? Is this your first business in the digital asset space? Or was it in 2014 that you started something different? Or how did you start to think about um, reapplying those skills you'd picked up in the in the gambling space to to what you do today and and, and try and if you can um help me understand what's happened the last five to seven years or so since that moment began yeah sure so um you know at the time that we um were encountering it in in asia i was still cfo of william Mill australia um that business um we sold in in 2018 but we'd already kind of um, had the idea for a, for a fund. So I'd been introduced to someone who um, was a sort of venture capitalist in 
in Australia that wanted to help me set it up. And we launched it in 2018. So and because, you know, we'd seen the sort of use case, I was absolutely 100% convicted on Bitcoin, right? And I was very, very confident about where it was going um, and, you know, pretty gung-ho. So we launched in, um, it would have been April 2018. Of course, at that point, the market's starting to, to crash, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, we're coming off the 2017 highs. And as we went through that first year of our business at Listed Reserve, you know, asset prices in the sector actually were down 70%. And, you know, our fund finished that year, um, finished 2018 down 40%. Ouch. It, was, it was absolutely brutal. Wow. And of course, when you launch, it's your it's your friends and your family and all that, that, that you know, they're the first people that come into your fund, right? So mm. it, it's kind of, that was a very um, sort of chastening experience. But, um, you know, I was super confident um, that, you know, Bitcoin was going to make it. But I have to say, um, December 2018 in, in, um, in particular was was sort of quite a low moment. Happy Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it was very much it was very much like that. Funnily enough, uh, a friend of mine in the, in the UK who I went to university with, I was uh, I was talking to him in December 2018. He's like, "How's it going?" And I'm like, "Look, mate, it's, it, it's pretty it's pretty tough actually because you know we you know this is what's happened. Asset prices. Blah, blah, blah. He goes, oh, he's and he's going pretty well. Anyway, he uh, he invested in the fund at that point, and uh, yeah, he's made an absolute killing. Yeah, so, uh, wow! If, if you come in when the chips are really down, it uh, it tends to work out quite nicely. I have a sneaky feeling that the next six months or so is going to be similar territory for the Bitcoin price. Like if the seventeen k we recently re- um, recently saw, if that's the market bottom, maybe we'll see it work down to something similar to that again between now and Christmas, but now feels like a very similar time in terms of accumulation for people, um, which I think is exciting. So the the question I have is, you know, why start a fund? Uh, and I'm particularly interested in problem solving. So your customers, you mentioned friends and family to begin with. Why can't they just go and buy Bitcoin themselves? Why do they want to give money to a fund manager that I presume has some management fees, you know, whether you have a, an annual fee or a carry or however it might work? Um, talk me through the mechanics of how the fund is is functioning in reality. Like, do you have bank accounts in the traditional fiat system that you take bank transfers to, and then you you know move stuff across to the the digital world, or are you taking um, just digital payments? Excuse me. Um, and and how does it actually work? If that makes sense, because I'm I'm keen to understand the use case for funds in an environment where if you do use a Bitcoin exchange, you can. Um, you know, send your money there and then you can send it to your own self-hosted wallet or whatever you want to do, self-custody wallet. So, you know, and if you do have a wider thesis on digital assets than just Bitcoin, I'd love to hear what that is. Um, this is a Bitcoin-focused show, but equally, I'm very much open to investing in every asset. You know, you, you can put money where you want. It's up to you. So intrigued on a few levels there. Sure. So the, the mechanism of the fund, and, and you know, if you if you speak to, um, you know, your, your pure Bitcoiners, they would tell you, you know, you must host your own assets on your own node. And, um, you know, that's the way to invest in Bitcoin because unless you do that, you know, they're not your Bitcoins. And, and you know, there's some truth in that. And yeah. um, I think the service that we're actually providing to people uh, is twofold. 
So we spend a lot of time on education. So we do a, a lot of writing. We write a lot of reports for clients. But in the main, um, our clients, they, they're not confident to go and buy Bitcoin and then store it for themselves, right? Yep. It's a big deal to be able to um, send, you know, 100K, quarter of a million somewhere, and then th this sort of digital thing comes back at you, and then what do I do with it? And I'm following instructions on a website, and I'm really worried that I'm going to lose it. And, you know, I've it's stressful. There's no one to right. talk to. You don't have a fucking clue what's going on. It's very different to the traditional wealth management model where you get taken for a nice lunch once a year and they'll tell you how many bonds and stocks you own. It, it's different. It's very different. I agree. And, you know, it, there are things that happen when, you, when you're new to it, right? Like, for example, you buy it, you withdraw it, and then it doesn't come, right? Where, where, where are my Bitcoins, Okay. And then because people don't understand, you've got to wait for two blocks until it, the withdrawal is processed and maybe four blocks, right? Well, that might be 40 minutes, but it, it might be five hours if the blocks are coming through slowly yeah. and you're a little lucky. But people it, find it tremendously stressful, first of all. So they don't want to do it. Secondly, um, the prices on uh, exchanges that a, a retail client would use are extremely high, Right. So in Australia, they pay a spread, which can be anywhere up to sort of 7%. They then, um, you pay another spread, right? Because you're buying it in Australian dollars. So you generally pay the AUUS spread as well. It's an extremely expensive way to buy Bitcoin. So what, you know, what we say to clients is, you know, even though they are paying a management fee, essentially the first three or four years of that management fee is, is zero to them, right? Because um of the sort of charges they would have paid buying on an exchange we buy all our assets over the counter we buy them from all over the world wherever we can get the sort of best price mm. but no client that's, that's investing sort of what i would call serious money sort of 100 to a million dollars he's gonna he's gonna just send that amount of money to some broker that they've never ever heard of uh, in the hope that they send back some digital assets that they don't know what to do with Right. So the service we're providing is we're essentially going out, validating who the counterparties are. We're custodying the assets for the clients. So we don't actually hold the assets as the manager. Right. They're all in custody and clients feel like, you know, I'm, I'm secure and happy with that. And I accept that for a lot of Bitcoiners, um, that's kind of not the way they perceive things that they, they want people to host assets you know in in wallets and on their own node etc but the number one um way that, that that people lose value in bitcoin is not knowing how to look after it properly right you know the, the amount of money that's been lost because people make a mistake they don't know how to store it properly their hard drive corrupts and they don't know how to get it back and they haven't stored the seed properly and all the rest of it and um, you know we we have clients that are invested in the fund and also have Bitcoin on the side. The number of them that ring up and go, look, I'm struggling. Can you just help me with this? Because mm. my wallet's gone a bit wonky. Happens all the time, right? And <laughs> a lot of them are relieved that there's only sort of 20 bucks in their self-hosted wallet. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, that, isn't it? And as, as entrepreneurs, I always... Um admire that ability to to problem solve so 
it, it is true. You can run your own node. You can self-host your own wallet and you can hold your own Bitcoin in a totally self-sovereign tech stack. That is the, the, the kind of the mecca for a lot of Bitcoiners. Um, and it's very cool. But I mean, even myself, who's very much down the rabbit hole, hasn't fully mastered all of those different technical steps that I've just mentioned. And in particular, when it comes to large sums of money, there is something, there's still a kind of human error element to transferring large amounts of money using the Bitcoin blockchain and, and getting familiar with it. And the more I've used it, the more comfortable I've become. But, you know, I had a couple of heart and mouth moments when I'm like, where's that just gone? You know, and you've sent something that's actually, you, you don't really, you can't afford to lose this. <laughs> and yeah, it's we, like, we, oh. we, we, and, and at that point, I really, I really appreciate the the process of having an interaction with someone that can help. Um, yeah, so that there's a there's definitely a need there, and hence your business is is functioning essentially. Um, yeah, very cool. Okay, and so um, yeah, is there a wider digital asset play that you're you're focused on? So we've mentioned just Bitcoin at this stage, but you know, I know um, you guys potentially have been looking at um, some Bitcoin mining stuff. Um, we're chatting to one of your colleagues about that, and um there's probably some other bits and pieces you've worked on as a business since you know getting up and going in 2018 so what are some of the other angles that your funds interested in uh, investing and in, in getting returns for your your customers so yeah i mean our our primary fund is is a is a managed fund so that you mean that's heavily weighted towards bitcoin but there's there's other stuff in there and you know i think um we're extremely cautious about um what else we invest in that isn't bitcoin mm. um we have like very strict criteria about um, what goes in there. The, the, the number one one you've mentioned already is is sort of liquidity, right? For a, for a fund, you, you want to be able to know that you can liquidate assets at the market price. Um, but look, I think there is other value out there in the digital asset ecosystem. Um, you know, I, I, I have a, uh, I consider myself a Bitcoiner, um, but certainly the managed fund invests in, in other assets and you know the the other places that we're you know we're looking for um where we're going to place some money bitcoin mining certainly one i think uh the bitcoin mining ecosystem is going to grow a lot in australia over the next five years uh, particularly because of the, the whole sort of you know the 43 percent emission reduction target and all the rest of it um I, i'm not sure that people quite realized how profound that target is and the sorts of things that are going to have to happen to make it happen. Um, but I think you're going to find that the Bitcoin is going to play a role. And, um, you know, I, I can give you a few examples, but if you look at, um, say, Queensland's energy grid, right, that they're already stressed out during the day um, because so many people now have solar panels, right, that there's just a massive surplus of energy in Queensland um, during daylight hours. Now that surplus is going to carry on growing, right? And getting rid of surplus energy is not trivial. It's not, it doesn't just dissipate into the sky, right? So there's going to have to be some sort of load balancing mechanism that comes along um, actually to support the sort of renewable grids that they're going to build. Now you, you see it in Texas with their sort of ERCOT system. You see all the Bitcoin miners down there. I think we saw a very good test of it um, a few weeks ago where it got very hot in Texas and the Bitcoin miners just turned off their um, turned off their systems and stabilized the grid, right? That that's the that's the theory. I think that works equally well in Australia, which, you know, and probably 
it's going to become even more compelling now that we're we're into the sort of 43% reduction land. So we're looking quite closely um, at, at some investments in, in that sector as well, which I think, you know, I think it will really boom in the next five years. And what I like about that um, idea in a sense is not just the business case. I've, I've looked into myself and this idea of um, demand side response. I had a startup in London a few years ago where we were trying to work um, work something in that space. So I, I, I got a bit of familiarity with the energy market from that perspective. But to, to talk more from a fund angle, you know, the there are people out there with money and there are often people out there with money that don't know what to do with it. And it's a case of like, trying to find a home for that and if you become an expert with a, a specific angle like what you're talking about then people come to you and i think that's really exciting for for building businesses um what, what are some other high level areas that you will look to, to to place funds in the future if there's any potential you know, investors out there listening to this like what else gets you excited or is it really just still a, a predominant bitcoin play um, and what I'd like to circle back to as well is just some of those comments that you made about regulation and, and, and historically some of the, well, the business in Gibraltar that got shut down due to regulation. Um, but just, yeah, firstly, where are some of the other kind of growth areas or, or particular high level points you might look at with the fund? And then we'll get onto the regulation piece. Yeah, well, some of the other assets that were interested in the fund, I like um, closed, what, what we call um, closed loop ecosystems, right? That, that, that's how we the investment committee generally describes them. So where we see an asset that lives in a um, in a closed loop, we get a little bit more interested in it. Uh, an example would be Binance, you'd be familiar with the exchange, their, um, their own token BNB, which kind of exists and is embedded within that system, right? So if you use their system, it's a lot cheaper for you to pay fees, et cetera, with their um, native token, right? And that native token has been embedded in everything that they do since they launched. I think they've done a terrific job with that. And I, I, I see that use case. I see a profitable business. And you know, we can sort of um, compute a, uh, an investment case around assets like that, right? So um, because you know, you've got a very strong business and you've got a very um, compelling use case for the asset that's embedded, right? If you, if you look at that um, from a Bitcoin perspective, we actually consider the closed loop ecosystem for Bitcoin as to be all the value in the world, right? So it, that to me is what Bitcoin is. It, it's going to be the relative value measure for everything, okay? Mm. So, so that it's sort of potential markets enormous, but there's plenty of other ecosystems that are closed loop. So Bitcoin's closed loop is the whole world. Um, Binance's closed loop is its little exchange, but then there'll be loads of other closed loops like video games, right? So are there going to be um, economies inside video games? There are going to be economies inside video games, right? And are there um, are, are those currencies going to be interesting, particularly if they're if they're like I say, if they exist in that closed loop and the whole um, ecosystem uses it, it may well be that that currency is Bitcoin in some cases, but it might be something else. Uh, and so we look for things like that where there's sort of no leakage um, and they're, they're quite compelling. There's a use case. It's embedded within the sort of um, software and it generally is software that those people are using. Then we can consider those as sort of um, interesting potential investments and we look at 
things like that all the time, particularly in video games. Interesting. And, and that's in some senses as well, like, you know, we're looking to make returns as investors. And however you do that, it's totally fine. That's up to you. If you're comfortable putting money somewhere and you make great returns, then go for it, in my opinion. Um, there are yeah. So there are two questions. One I've already mentioned. There's a second I'll come to after that. So we touched on regulation, Daniel. So um, just to, to cycle back. So in Gibraltar in 2005, you were part of a business that got shut down due to regulatory changes. That experience you felt was kind of mirrored today, where you feel that the regulatory environment is getting uh, stronger and um, potentially some big moves coming in the near future. Talk me through how you're seeing that. Well, there's a pretty good recent example, actually, with um, Tornado Cash, right? You, you know, the Ethereum mixing service that the US um, essentially blacklisted two weeks ago, right? Yep. Now, that was, to me, fascinating because two, thing, two things happened, right? First of all, um, they closed it down and they blacklisted all the addresses and they said, you know, look, the North Koreans are using it to launder money. And I've got no reason to disbelieve them, right? So that was not such a big surprise. What perhaps was surprising then was throughout that whole Ethereum and DeFi ecosystem, the way that the dominoes fell so very quickly um, of everybody complying with the OFAC regulations. So Coinbase, um, Aave, Binance, they, they all fell into line. And it sort of revealed pretty quickly that that ecosystem is not that decentralized, right? And it, it seems to me that it's been very easy for the US government to just essentially censor Ethereum, which is which is what they've done. Mm. And you know, when we when we sort of look at the way that Ethereum's traveling, it's going to proof of stake next month if everything goes well. And if you look at um, if you look at the sort of what's staked on that beacon chain. Three entities, right, control 60% of the staked assets. So it's three phone calls for the US government to say to Ethereum, just double the supply for us, will you? Yeah. yeah. Right. It, it, it's They've essentially been um, sort of penetrated by the US government via tornado. It's really mm. fascinating, right? Mm. And it's I think for, for Bitcoin people, it, it's extremely positive that Ethereum's moving to proof of stake because all these arguments that we see on sort of Twitter about it and all the rest of it, we're now going to see um, the difference, right? It's the two biggest assets in the space. They go head to head with different consensus mechanisms. And one of them hasn't even got to the new consensus mechanism and it's already mm. struggling with regulation, right? Mm. It, it's very, very interesting. And I, I think, you know, Bitcoin is... Um, is sort of well placed for the for the long term to kind of resist that kind of thing. It's been through multiple tests now where you've had the sort of the big nightmares that we all feared. So the 2017 fork wars, which was a nightmare. You've had the sort of state sponsored attack from China last year, which sort of killed off mining. I mean, that was an existential moment for Bitcoin. That was like a that was a regulatory nightmare. You can't mine it anymore, right? The hash dropped by half. It's like incredible, it a, isn't it? Yeah. And the, the, the comeback, the engineering feat to move that much hash rate in such a small space of time is like it's it's breathtaking stuff, right? So I think 
you know, you're sort of seeing one asset sort of smash through regulation and another one is sort of slowly slipping into the claws of regulation, right? Mm. And uh, it's going to carry on happening like that. Now, I don't think that necessarily makes Ethereum a bad investment, by the way, right? I just think it makes Ethereum a bank. It might be very successful, but it's not the same, right? It is not the same um, direction of travel that Bitcoin's going in. So I did a period of time. So I worked in the startup space and I was angel investing. So I was looking for early stage equity uh, investments and with the potential for, you know, breakout growth. And I worked with an angel investment syndicate in London and, you know, they helped due diligence a load of businesses. And it was, it was a really fun time actually. And I had my first exit at the start of this year. It was the three X within three years, which is exciting, but nothing crazy. But what it taught me was, how to due diligence ideas how to look at people how to consider markets and um how to diversify when you're taking risk at such an early stage um but most importantly was to kind of leverage other people's um research so it's totally okay to listen to someone that you respect that has deep expertise in an area who's put money into an early stage company to go in alongside them because their idea of the success that that company might have due to their experience is is much richer and deeper than yours will ever be. And you can potentially share in that upside, but you know you have limited downside. When I really first started taking proper attention of Bitcoin in 2020, having owned some for a few years, um, it was largely to to with Michael Saylor. Like I'm, I'm a big Saylor advocate, as most of us are in the space, and watching a stock-listed company smash by $400 million worth of Bitcoin with a legal department, with an accounting department, you name it, to, to say, no, you can't do this. And he did it anyway. It was a hugely legitimizing process. And I remember a specific YouTube video with Raul Pal, who's taken a turn in a different direction, but um, it was called uh, Bitcoin Infiltrates Corporate America. And it was this amazing two hour long YouTube with Michael being interviewed. You think, wow, this is crazy. But the point that he made, even in that uh, particular show was, you know, Bitcoin is completely clear at what it does. It is a proof of work mechanism that is decentralized and is a potential bearer asset that can be used instead of gold in the digital realm. It will displace central banks, whereas Ethereum is messing around with proof of stake and not quite sure what it is at this stage and is more akin to a startup investment. So that's how I kind of see the two differences. It's one is like a almost like a commodity, i.e. Bitcoin, and then everything else in the crypto space is much more akin to buying early stage equity positions in companies that are very, very risky with you know, board members and teams and um, business plans and you know, changing, changing ideas constantly, essentially. Um, I, I don't know if you have a similar view to that, but it, 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 it kind of chimes with what you, were just, um, what you were just saying, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of stare aghast sometimes at Twitter, which which I love, by the way. And um, <laughs> it's good you know, fun. I follow, you know, all the Bitcoiners and, you know, I look at it when they're sort of jumping up and down, going crazy about whatever Ethereum's up to. I'm like, well, you should be delighted, right? Ethereum is essentially has run every single test of things that people say, you should do that with Bitcoin, you should do that with Bitcoin, right? And it hasn't worked, right? Bitcoin, Bitcoin just carries on doing whatever it's doing. And it's like every other asset, not just blaming Ethereum, but every other asset tries the sort of crazy stuff and it doesn't work. And, and so you've got all these test cases out there. They essentially, 
validate the Bitcoin model, right? We should be delighted. And I think especially delighted at the move to proof of stake because Ethereum's going down a road. No one's gone from one to the other. Mm. And um, they're going down a road that, that's that's going to validate um, a lot of the arguments that people have made over the sort of last 10 years. So I think there's a lot to be grateful for that there's this asset out there that's sort of running all these tests. And let's not forget, Ethereum brought Tether, right? And Tether's been tremendously helpful um, in the development of Bitcoin, right? It's much easier for people to interact and trade in and out of Bitcoin um, with, with Tether. And, you know, for, for the most part, Tether ran on Ethereum. So I think there's lots to be lots to be grateful for, even if you hate it and think it's going to fail and, you know, you would never invest a dollar in it. I think it's performed a tremendous service of Bitcoin. I think it will continue to as well. Yeah, so, and on that note, I had a um, uh, a question come from De Leon on Twitter. So I asked if anyone had any questions for you. And he says, um, ask him about maximalism, good or bad. I assume he's referring to Bitcoin maximalism. So do you have a um, an opinion on that, Daniel? Well, maximalism. Is there another kind other than Bitcoin maximalism? I, I haven't heard of one, but I assume <laughs> that's what he's talking about. Yeah. Right. Um, well, actually, I think that the the maximalists play a sort of really important role, I have to say, right? You need people, um, and many of them have a tremendously deep understanding of, of Bitcoin. Like the first, you know, right at the top where, I, you know, was, was talking about um, Max Kaiser and I watch Russia Today, right? He is a Bitcoin maximalist, right? And, you know, he's gone on his own journey right now. He's off sort of with nation state adoption in El Salvador, but... A lot of the people that I've learned uh, a tremendous amount from are, are Bitcoin maximalists. And I think on the whole, they do a tremendous job um, educating people about what's right and what's wrong. Now, clearly, they sort of aggressively call out what they think are frauds uh, as far as other assets are concerned. But, you know, I think you need people to, to, to advocate, right? You, you need people to go out there and say, this is why this works, this is why this is a good thing, et cetera. And some of them have such a tremendously deep understanding of Bitcoin. I mean, you've had some of them on your show. Mm. Um, you know, they understand it really well. And my experience has been I've learned the most from those people. What I've actually found is I sort of I I, I feel like I sort of graduate have graduated from some people to other people, right? So, mm. you know, I used to be a kind of Max Kaiser, and then I, I sort of listened to Stephen Levera, and now I, you know, my current favorite maximalist is a guy called Alan Farrington, um, yeah. who, who wrote uh, Bitcoin is Venice. I, I think he's he's absolutely brilliant, right? The book's brilliant, hard to read, but it's absolutely brilliant. And you know, there's there's some tremendously intelligent people that would identify as maximalists. It obviously has a bit of a downside, and it can sort of descend into horribleness on Twitter and, you know, attacks on individuals and all the rest of it. But, you know, Twitter's a pretty rough playground for ideas. I think that's why it's great, but because you go in there, if you say something stupid, you're just going to get slaughtered. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And no isn't that as sure. it should be, though? But that's kind of as it should be. So, yeah, yeah I, I think they, on the whole, like, they're really important. And the fact that they exist tells me something. And the fact that, you know, they don't exist very much um, in the area of other assets also tells me something. 
I, I have to confess, I find myself and my my um my brain being taken towards that route like more and more and more. I think I'd probably affiliate with being a Bitcoin maxi myself. Having you know, what, what's investing for? Well, at the end of the day, I mean, in my personal case, I was managing a inheritance from a young age. My father died young. And I needed a store of value. Now, if you stay in cash, inflation is going to kill you. So you get forced to invest. Investing and saving is not the same thing. And if all you really want is a store of value over time, well, Bitcoin you know, performs that excellently as a job. You have liquidity the entire time. You can have it on your own self-hosted or you know, your own um, keys at home that no one can take off you and the more i look at other more traditional investments there's just so much risk involved like you've got companies and teams of people you've got regulations that can change on a whim there's no liquidity and it's um it's fascinating how it just like well actually hang on maybe there isn't anything more important to me than helping build a neutral monetary network that's clearly impacting people from the very top of society all the way to the very bottom and more so at the bottom i mean I've interviewed some characters based in Africa, and it's just incredible the stories that you hear of the impact that Bitcoin's going to have in these more, let's say, for sake of another description, frontier markets where financial markets actually don't function. And, you know, that brilliant book by Alex Gladstein about check your financial privilege, it, it, it's it's sucking me in, Daniel. I'm not going to lie. And hence, here I am on a Bitcoin podcast that I started recently, just kind of ranting about how cool I think it is. Um, that's not to say I don't believe that people can invest their money wherever they want. They can. Um, but I'm starting to see very few other places I would like to allocate any capital other than Bitcoin. Um, and I guess with a heavily weighted Bitcoin fund like yours that's being successful, I noticed you are three or 400% up or something. It's, you know, why would you look anywhere else? It's done its job and exactly what you asked for. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think you're calling out an interesting point, actually, uh, as far as, um, Africa is concerned because right from the beginning, right, it's been bottom up Bitcoin, right? Yeah. It's been just bootstrapped, first of all, by sort of some enthusiasts that were cryptographers and, you know, it gradually made its way from there. But you're finding adoption where currencies are weakest first, which makes complete sense, right? It makes complete sense that it's popular. Uh, in sort of Nigeria and Argentina and, you know, Argentina as part of their last IMF deal, which is probably their 20th IMF bailout. And part of the deal with the IMF was you've got to ban cryptocurrencies. (laughs) You know, fundamentally they're they're weakening the the proposition of the local fiat, right? People, people are working it out and they're working it out quick where they need it most. Right. And, you know, in places where, you know, where we live in Australia, right? It's a pretty stable currency. Um, you know, it's not going to collapse tomorrow. It's going to, it's going to mm-hmm. erode slowly. So the urgency of our requirement is lower. But it, it's no surprise that sort of adoption is is so great, you know, in the sort of weaker currency countries. I think that will probably, uh, probably continue. You can sort of see it in Google Trends as well, you know. Google Trends very nicely um, where currencies are, are weak and that the, that tells me something right that 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 trend is adoption for me because people are looking for an alternative and it also says they understand that it can be bitcoin um i i think they're uh, it, it's it's tremendously important and it, it couldn't be an accident that jack dorsey's kind of adopted africa as his chosen location for his kind of bitcoin efforts right it's mm-hmm. not 
he's obviously seen something there and it kind of makes sense to me as well you know yeah it's fascinating watching it all play out isn't it so to 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 turn back to listed reserves um for a moment daniel so um someone like yourself i wouldn't necessarily have described as a typical fund manager most fund managers that i speak to are um, you know, they've been fund managers for a long, long time. Whereas you've been within large businesses like William Hill, more from a finance and accounting perspective. So have you had to bring on um, fund management expertise into your team? How have you found um, what, at least from the outside, in my perspective, looks like a bit of a, a kind of career change in terms of the space that you're working in? And what have been some of the, the biggest difficulties you've faced during the process? Yeah, well, I've, I've had quite a, quite a lot of help actually from... Um, you know, the, the co-founders who, um, one of whom runs a funds management business. So I've had a pretty good steer on um, what to do, but the learning curves, the learning curves pretty steep, right? Mm. And, um, but, but fundamentally it's, it's, you know, the rule we have here, and this is the sort of rule we live by is it's other people's money, right? And so when you're, that's the golden rule for me as the fund manager. You just got to be careful, get things right, because you know you're looking after other people's assets, and that's their expectation of you. And I don't think there's anything fundamentally. It's no more complicated than that, right? Mm. Uh, and getting that right is um, is kind of important and where most of the effort is. But yeah, it is, I suppose, a bit of a a bit of a career change. But you know what what people are actually paying for is domain expertise, right? They're interested in, they're not interested in, can you be a fund manager and do the technical things required, right? They just assume that you can. And um, what they're actually interested in is what do you know um, about this asset and where it's going and this space and where it's going that other people don't or that I don't, right? Mm. That, that, that's what they pay for. Their expectation is, that you're across the sector, what's happening, you're well read, you understand it, and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, you know, I've spent years and years now doing nothing but reading about it. So it's not uh, it's not a massive upheaval to do it for a living, right? It's mm. it's fun. I mean, we um, we have a great time, really, because we're sort of living in that digital asset ecosystem. So we, you know, we live every drama on Twitter, you know, the whole tornado thing last week, which was like tremendous June with Celsius and Voyager and 3AC, like it's wild. It's mm. completely wild, right? Mm. And very sort of exciting and engaging as a result. So um, it's been, it's terrific fun. And, you know, yeah, we do in the sort of um technical and let's let's be frank the boring aspects of fund management yeah we get a fair bit of help from the uh, from the outside just to just to make sure it's um it, it's ticked off as it were and so you mentioned your co-founder had some experience in fund management in the past i'm intrigued how did you meet your co-founder it's often a uh, a very interesting and important relationship between people that start businesses together yeah well yeah it was introduced by a friend who um who said, yeah, he's sort of basically venture capitalist and will uh, he's really interested in the digital asset space. And so, you know, he, you know, wants to wants to launch a business. And so um, yeah, I was just introduced by a friend who actually also worked at William Hill, uh, who, who who put me in touch. And we sort of spent like a, 
a fair while going back and forth around the idea and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of went from there and you, you sort of work out um, quite quickly if you can if you can work with people and if you um, have a sort of personality that, that gels. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a sort of tremendous, uh, tremendous help for me because as you rightly pointed out, you know, at the start, I'd never been a fund manager, right? I was working it out um, from scratch, which was, um, yeah, which was interesting, but it can be done. Well, I love that. That's what it's all about, though, is fuck it, I'll work it out. You know, that's a, oh, to be honest, a fairly uncommon trait. Um, it seems to be one that's fairly common within people I speak to in the Bitcoin space. And it's largely one that, um, it kind of reverberates through the, the characteristics of the type of people that have gone down the rabbit hole and have adopted Bitcoin in a meaningful way. So fuck it, I'll work it out is one like, um, let's say like a get up and go type mentality. But the other is then the ability to take risk and the third being having faith in their decisions. So people just go, okay, this is risky, but I absolutely believe it's the right thing to do. So let me figure it out. And that kind of combination, I think, is fascinating. It's happening all over the world to all these different people. And you know, my podcast is a very, very small microcosm in what is a, a cultural revolution, in a sense. It's quite amazing. Um, well, listen, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing this hour with me today and, and sharing your journey. I wish you all the best with Listed Reserve and, and growing the fund and the business over the years to come. If people want to reach out and get in touch, uh, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, just on our website there, you can you can ping us and i think it's info at listed reserve and we'll uh, we'll get back to you and you can yeah we've got a weekly newsletter that's actually uh, quite popular um money bits which people tend to enjoy it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek look at and um, what's gone on over the course of the weeks so that's there as well if you just want um if you just want the sort of information and the learnings that's probably a good place to a good place to start wonderful all right well thank you so much for your time tonight daniel thank you Thanks a lot, Jake. Bye-bye. Well done, friends. You made it to the end of the episode. I couldn't be more grateful for you sharing this time with me and putting your energy into this project. If you like what you hear, please, first and foremost, share it with your friends and family. Getting the message out to those around us nearest and dearest, I think is one of the most important things we can possibly do. On top of that, Wherever you listen to this, please rate, subscribe, share, etc. I'd really appreciate the support there as I try and build out this podcast. And lastly, I'm looking to build a network of startups and founders in this space. So if you know anyone that's interested in building a business and is looking for investment, please send them in my direction. Thank you so much, guys. You've been listening to Bitcoin with you.